This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Good evening, everyone. My name is Harry Helling. I'm the Executive Director here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps, UC San Diego. I'd like to welcome you all to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Speaker Series. This evening, we are delighted to welcome two speakers, Bernie Bastian Olvera and Raisa Pilatowski, for a dynamic presentation in which all of you will have a pr- the opportunity to participate. Raisa is an environmental communicator, co-founder, and director of Planeteando, a platform of environmental communication in Spanish. For more than five years, she has created and hosted videos, podcasts, blogs, performances, and environmental festivals. Her work is focused on climate and environmental justice, as well as feminist political ecology. Bernard Bastian Olvera is an institutional postdoctoral fellow here at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. He's interested in understanding climate change impacts on ecosystems and the economy. Bernie received his PhD from the University of California, Davis, and his master's from University College in London. Originally from Mexico City, Bernie is deeply involved in climate activism, science communications, uh, both here in the United States and in Mexico. Please join me in welcoming Raisa and Bernie for their presentation entitled Climate Economics and Communication, Naming and Value, What Matters? Well, hi everyone. Uh, I'm Raisa Piotowski. And I'm Bernie Bastian. And we're very happy to be here tonight and seeing all these bright faces. And also very happy because, as you can see behind me, a lot of you have already uh, started contributing to our talk tonight. Uh, this was a warm-up, too, because we're, we'll be doing more polls throughout the presentation. So if you haven't done it yet, please, uh, you can go either by your uh, browser in your cell phone or by text, and you can text uh, the code SherylPitch178 to the number 2333, and you can answer our first prompt, which is, what benefits do you get from the ocean? And there's no limit. You can answer like all the benefits that you can think of. Yeah, this is really cool, and it's been super nice to see how this uh, is moving. Every time you see the letters moving, it's because another person is uh, entering uh, new benefits that they get from the ocean, so it's been fantastic to see all the diverse uh, benefits that we see here, like uh, food, scuba, air, life, breeze, peace. Like, Take a look at that and, and uh, take a moment to amaze yourself as well as us. So we wanted to start uh, by sharing ourselves what are the benefits that Rice and I we get from, from the ocean. Yeah, so our first benefit, it's, uh, it's going to look weird because it looks like we're sad there, but we're actually very, very curious persons, so we like to go and take walks on the beach, and we're always looking at the sand and looking at the minerals and looking at all the creatures that the waves bring. So walks on the beach is definitely in for us. Yeah. yeah, super good, as well as the Baja-style fish tacos <laughs> that we got to discover here in San Diego. We actually really like them, which is saying a lot uh, coming from a Mexican with a PhD in tacos. So that's, uh, that's fantastic. And finally, being here and being close to the Birch Aquarium and to Scripps Institution of Oceanography, we've been very amazed to learn about all the amazing creatures that live in the ocean that we're not familiar with because they live very deep there. Yeah, so, I mean, these are only one of the benefits that we get from the ocean, and these benefits are as diverse as people is in the Earth. Like, uh, we saw some of the benefits that you put in, and anywhere where oceans and people interact, these type of benefits are going to arise. And it's going to be as diverse, as unique as the people, as I said. But also, we see that climate change is impacting the oceans. Uh, This is uh, how the oceans have uh, warmed uh, in the past century. And these biophysical changes have also impacted uh, the ecosystems, the fish population, the living species of the ocean, This is how the uh, fish biomass will change by the end of the century in a high warming uh, scenario. So we see these changes that are happening in our oceans. Uh, It is really clear the link of how climate change um, 
kind of solidifies in the oceans of the world, and for that matter, in all the Earth system components. And it's sort of uh, being well studied by academia. It's kind of robust. We have uh, all the analysis, all the results are clear. And this has been more or less well communicated to the, to the general public, to the general audience. So we're going to start with the second poll of the night. So take out your phones and answer uh, to this poll. If you already texted the code, you only need to answer Y or N. Uh, cool. We're starting to get some answers. Uh, that's really cool. Are you worried about climate change? Okay, there was like a first no that kind of dwarfed the <laughs> other thing. But okay, we're getting actually the classical 97% of uh, consensus that was very famous uh, a decade ago among scientists. Okay, now 98. Okay, so uh, thank you so much for participating. This was a warming up. Uh, and really, really cool, no? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's something that really reflects like uh, like what people in this room know about what's happening and how they feel about it. Uh, but even 10 years ago, that's not how it looked like. Yale Program on Climate Change Communication has done these surveys around the US where they ask this, this type of questions to the population. And as you can see, back in 2014, uh, it wasn't as, as present as we saw tonight with this room. Like, uh, when they asked, like, they estimated the percentage of adults who are worried about global warming, they saw that it's, like, in the, like, 50% in most counties in the U.S. However, with time, a lot of things have happened since then. Uh, the Paris Agreement, IPCC reports, Greta Thunberg and Fridays for the Future, a lot of things are going on. And now the, the landscape looks different. Now, in most counties of the U.S., people are saying that they're very worried about climate change. So um, one thing is uh, how climate change is impacting the Earth system. But another thing is talking about how climate change is impacting people. So uh, we want to go to our third poll now? I don't know. I'm, I'm losing count. But uh, in our third poll... We want to ask you if you think that climate change will harm you personally. So again, you can text a Y or an N, uh, however you feel. So we're starting to see, okay, so it's a very similar uh, perspective. Yeah, but it's still a little bit more of no's here. Uh, 93% versus the 98 that was before. Um, and yeah, uh, so and like 9% of no's. Okay, so... Um, this is not as clear as before, and not all the persons in the world or in the U.S. think as people think in this, in this room. And actually, we can show you one of the uh, results of these same polls uh, asked throughout the U.S. And this is where we see that most people answer that, no, climate change won't harm them uh, personally. Uh, and this is the poll for 2021. Uh, and this is kind of not surprising, not that surprising, because... In academia, we don't really have it as clear how climate impacts will affect society, the different sectors, the different things we value, as we have uh, in, the, in the natural science side. We don't have that in the social science side. And that message haven't uh, uh, like, uh, reached the general audience yet. Uh, so it's still kind of not, not very clear what this link is. And yeah, that's also not surprising because of the ways we have tackled climate change communication. If we were in a talk about climate change 10 years ago, we would be talking all about polar bears and how global warming will uh, melt sea ice and polar bears will, will suffer. Uh, so these type of narratives are, I mean, are true, but these are like so powerful this narrative of the polar bear to picture like a concrete image or something so abstract as the climate change, was very powerful. And this image stick to our heads. And we think that climate change uh, is affecting actually something that is far from us and that uh, probably won't affect us uh, personally. That was the, like, the power of this, uh, of this image and talking about uh, polar bears. Uh, it alienated us from uh, the, the damages that climate change had on, on us. Uh, so what we do, Raisa and I here, is bring back to the center of the story our own things, the things that we, that we value. Um, we tell the stories of the things we value. We put these at the center. And also, we use these values to inform models of climate change policy. 
Basically, that's what we, de that's what we do uh, day to day. How do we do this? Well, uh, using two main uh, disciplines, science communication and climate change economics. And as you see at the center, at the heart of these two things that we do, the word value is in there. So let's reflect a little bit on that. Yeah, so I want to give you a little bit on how uh, we've come to learn about different values through on, the, on the side of climate change communication. And I also want to give you a little bit of a background on how we got here. Uh, we met back in 2010 when we were undergrad students in Mexico City studying earth science. And when we met, it was like a like an explosion or something because we had really similar similar interests not only on the scientific part but also on on artistic expressions and how to come how to combine the two of them. So we started doing very amateurish stuff, like as you can see, like this. Uh, uh, filmmaking as we thought we were doing, but we were also taking inspiration from what other people were doing, like podcasts, like this is Science Friday. And as we moved on to our master's degrees, uh, we, we kind of kept pushing and exploring and finding out what, what worked for us. And that culminated in 2017 when we created Planeteando. Like, I'm, I'm bringing the whole brand here. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is a science communication platform uh, where we try to communicate environmental and earth science and climate issues for Spanish-speaking communities uh, broadly. And at the beginning, it was just the two of us in a very small studio in London using a very cheap green screen and a cell phone. But something that we also strive for was to create partnerships and create more of a collective of people that had the same goals and ideals as us. And with time, we have been very lucky to find like a lot of collaborators and colleagues who have joined our mission. And we have students, other researchers, um, other even institutions, professional institutions, universities, production companies, government institutions from Mexico, and activists, collectives, artists, everyone who really wants to put their thoughts and their values on the center of this conversation. And the way we've done it uh, in Planeteando is mostly through videos. So as you can see, we like to explore different topics uh, and play with uh, like dressing up and <laughs> making fun and try to have a fun language uh, doing it, also bringing together art and these topics. We also have a blog where people can uh, write as guests and explore things that interest them. So for example, this was one about why are whales so big? And finally, we also produce podcasts that are in the lines of this topic. So, for example, this one is about climate change myths, big environmental issues in Mexico, and we analyze uh, the environmental messages in movies. But we like to experiment and try out new things, and social media has been a really good way to do that. So we also try to make memes and... Uh, tried to do some illustrations and infographics. For example, this one was to support uh, two activist groups in La Paz and in Gosumel who were against ports for mega cruises. And um, we also organized an Earth Day festival. This year would be our fourth edition. And we like to bring together a lot of organizations to do this. And not only we don't think of ourselves as organizers, but we like to think of ourselves as catalyzers for all these organizations and people and groups and collectives to bring at the center what they value, what they do, and show it to a diverse audience who might not be familiar or might not encounter these types of information in their daily lives. But I want to focus in two specific projects that we've done in the recent years. Uh, one is called BioGuardianes and the other one, Tierra Camp. The Guardianes was a documentary series that we produced for the uh, Channel 14, Canal 14, uh, which is a public television channel in Mexico. And as you can see, we, we took these really cool species or groups of species, but our goal wasn't to just showcase how they are at risk or in danger, which some of them are, unfortunately. We wanted to also show how people connect to them and value them, and through that connection, create projects to preserve them. 
So we, we were behind the scenes trying to create this narrative and also find where those stories are. So we were able to travel to uh, these parts of Mexico, the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, Veracruz, Jalisco, and uh, also our experience as communicators gave us a chance to be on the forefront as hosts so we could hear these stories uh, firsthand. The other project is Tierra Camp, which was supported by uh, National Geographic, Explorers Grant and the American Geophysical Union. And we organized this as a collaborative summer school for environmental justice advocates in Mexico, where we, they, like everyone in the school, uh, it wasn't like a top-down structure where someone would teach and someone else will learn, but the idea was for everyone to bring what they were really good at and also to bring the questions and the needs that they had to develop their own projects. And thanks to that, uh, a lot of them could develop further what they were already doing or create new ideas that they have developed over the last year. So for ex some examples of these projects are uh, community radio stations, puppet theater, um, documentary filmmaking, podcast series, and also uh, creating short stories. So, as you can see, there's a lot of things going on, but that diversity of projects and people that we've encountered, has, uh, we've learned from that that value is as diverse as there are people and is as diverse as the stories that we tell. Yeah, so this has been like really cool uh, experience for both of us, and uh, especially for me that I also wear another hat, which is uh, the research hat. Uh, as you heard, I also been wondering, and um, it's been super valuable to think, well, how we think about value in academia or in the models that are used to do climate policy? How is it really reflecting what we have found in uh, science communication? Uh, so the question here was like, how is value defined in these models? In most, most of these models rely on economics. So it's always good to go back to uh, basic concepts on economics and think back how they are defining value. Uh, so, in classical economics, the material inputs to create, for example, a certain good, a product, are the things that inform its value. This means that, for example, uh, the amount of resources and time that you put, in, that you put into building something is going to inform uh, what is its value. And then, from there, if you want to put that product, for example, in the market, you would put a price um, based on whatever that value was. That's uh, the example in classical economics, like 200 years ago, in a whole other economy that, uh, than the one that we're living in today, which is like a global economy, and that has been uh, mostly studied by um, the predominant uh, view of neoclassical economics, in which value now is not informed by uh, anything material, but by more subjective things. What would be your willingness to pay uh, for this product, or for this service, or for this thing? Uh, basically, this uh, is subjective because now value is in the eyes of the consumer of this economy. Uh, and one example to contrast these two types of, um, of things is uh, to look at these two identical t-shirts that we have here. These t-shirts were made by the same persons using the same materials in the same building uh, during the same time. But only because one has certain brand in it, it can cost you like 10 times more than the other one. Your willingness to pay for it would be way higher, no? Uh, so now uh, these things like uh, uh, supply and demand curves are the things that inform what is your willingness to pay. And sometimes when we talk about the things that we buy in the market, these things might be or not related with the value. But other times uh, they are not. Uh, but this value and price has been uh, more uh, closely related in this view of uh, neoclassical economics, the current predominant view of seeing economics. And that is very important to keep in mind because most of the models that we use today use uh, behind them is a uh, neoclassical economic view. So when we ask the question on how climate change affects what we value, it's easy to conflate things that have a market price uh, with the things that we value. And most of times this question is actually, uh, it's been answered by the things that have a price in the market and we think that we are answering the question of how climate change affects what we value. And that's, and that's, a, that's a problem. So um, 
The models that are behind answering these type of questions are called integrated assessment models. They are, these are like studies or computational uh, lines of code that look at this question and basically these computational models, what they do, or any integrated assessment model, it bridges two fields of study that have been studied uh, uh, historically in different paths uh, on, up until an integrated assessment model like put them together. Uh, the first one for the climate science and economics, the first integrated assessment model that bridged uh, these two uh, fields of study was uh, one uh, created by William Nordhaus, the DICE model that actually earned him the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2018. Uh, so I'm going to tell you what is behind this model because uh, it's really interesting and can be uh, enlightening in, in uh, thinking uh, for us to think how, how, how we answer these type of uh, complicated questions of climate change and things we value. So on the economic side, uh, the DICE model depicts the economy uh, of uh, by putting two inputs for um, two main building blocks of our economy, which is manufactured capital, uh, what are the machines, infrastructure, financial capital that runs the economy, and on the other side, uh, human capital. Basically, could be seen as the labor force that runs the economy. These two things interact and create uh, economic output, um, which part of that economic output is consumed in the form of goods and services, but other part is uh, saved in the form of uh, capital accumulation and the economy grows. So that's the part of economics. But the part of uh, climate science, we know that our current ways, ways to produce uh, economy or to grow our economy uh, generate CO2 emissions. And this enters uh, the part of the models that have uh, the carbon cycle in it. CO2 emissions enter the atmosphere. Part of them are absorbed by the ocean, other parts by the biosphere. But the, emission, the CO2 that remains in the atmosphere warms up the planet. And then we, atmospheric temperature rises, and then atmos uh, a warmer planet damages the things that we consume or the services that we get in this economy. So this is the DICE model. And uh, how the DICE model it has been used is to answer uh, well, one very specific question, and this type of models, uh, that's, that's how they are used. And the question is the following. What would happen if I add a ton of CO2 emissions this year, the year 2023? So there you go, the emissions are plus one ton of CO2. What would happen to the damages that you get uh, in your uh, market goods and services? You would get the baseline damages plus an extra damage an extra damage that is coming from this ton of CO2 emissions. And that estimate has a specific name that is widely used in uh, policies and regulations across the US and across the globe, which is called the social cost of carbon. Basically, uh, it's what it, it has been called uh, the most important number you never heard of, uh, <laughs> which, yeah, tends to be true. Uh, a more kind of formal definition of the social cost of carbon is uh, the social cost of carbon in a year measures the impacts on human well-being of a ton of CO2 emitted to the atmosphere that year. And it's, it's just everywhere in uh, US and global uh, policy. For example, if we were to set a global carbon tax uh, to tax CO2 emissions, we would use the social cost of carbon. Uh, the social cost of carbon also uh, influences the low carbon fuel standards in California. And the social cost of carbon is everywhere in climate action plans and sustainability plans of many organizations, including the University of California. So changing and having a better estimate that is robust in the economic side and that has the most up-to-date science in these integrated assessment models affects all the policies and regulations that are already in place. Um, but let's take a, a critical look at the definition here, which says, I'm highlighting this word, impacts on human well-being. But I show you how these uh, integrated assessment models looks like, uh, look like. They don't have human well-being in, in there. They have m consumption of market goods and services. And that's very different from uh, the overall um, intuition of what is human well-being. So sure, uh, we value goods and services. Uh, things that we can buy and sell in the market, for example, fish tacos. <laughs> but there are other things, as we saw, that we value as well, like walks by the ocean, which are called non-market ecosystem services, things that we don't pay a price to get those benefits, 
or things that we don't even interact with them, but we still value them, like uh, just knowing that there are uh, deep sea species uh, in the ocean right now. These are called non-use values. Uh, so what I've been uh, doing recently, or what I've been doing as, as part of my research, is to include into these integrated assessment models, that's what I'm doing now, the, another type of capital, which is what is the capital that we get from the oceans? what I call here the blue natural capital. And this is uh, the capital that is behind uh, non consumption of market goods and services, like fish tacos, but also behind non-market ecosystem services and non-use values. Um, so basically, uh, and then now I can project how emissions damage the blue natural capital, uh, damages the ocean, and then how that damages our different components of well-being. Um, and that's what I call the blue dice model. Uh, so the blue dice model is an evolution or an extension of the classical or the standard dice model that only has these components into integrating uh, the benefits and the capital that we get from the oceans into this. And basically, that's what I'm doing here as part of my uh, institutional postdoctoral fellowship at Scripps, creating the blue dice model as part of Kate Ricky's lab. And also uh, um, working with great colleagues at the Center for Marine Biodiversity and Conservation uh, to tackle these, these, uh, these, these venues of research, which are mainly three. Uh, the first uh, venue of research is here, how oceans affect market goods and services, then how they affect non-market ecosystem services, specifically working uh, with the Aburto Lab at the CNBC there, and then how blue natural capital is behind uh, non-use values, working with Stuart Sanding and Lisa Levin uh, answering these, these questions. So basically here the blue dice model is also uh, kind of like playing the role of as a catalyzer of all the cool research that is going on at, at Scripps here. Um, but also it's, 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 it's kind of abstract, you know, like sometimes you look at these kind of boxes, arrows, lines of code, uh, and it abstracts you from reality, no? Like, uh, I, I, I find myself in the computer really far from all these values that we learned on the field, that we learned with our friends, all these struggles. And it's always, uh, good to back off a little bit and, uh, and have a look to what we have learned before. Yeah, so my role in this talk is to kind of bring us down to earth and see how all these boxes and arrows kind of look like in reality. So in our first example, I'm going to tell you a story or an example of how uh, natural capital in general uh, and its complexity, it's related to our consumption of market goods and services. Uh, and this was from when we were filming uh, Bio Guardianes, the documentary series. And so I want to introduce you to this plant called agave. Some may know it, some may not. And as many plants, the agave has flowers. And it has flowers to reproduce because uh, with the flowers come pollinators, like these super cool animals called bats. And the bats feed from the nectar and in turn uh, pollinate agave plants. However, uh, the agave is also used for other things like producing tequila and mezcal. And uh, what would usually be used by the agave plant, the sugar that it gathers to be able to flower, uh, it's a sugar that the producers need at the heart of the agave to create their beverages that we, some of us enjoy. <laughs> uh, yeah, but the issue here is that they need to uh, cut this before the agave flowers because if not they won't have the sugar that they need for that drink. So it looks like there's like a, like this dilemma, right? So should they let the agave reproduce or should they take the sugar for the for the tequila? But it actually doesn't happen like that because um, how how do they do that? Uh, well, let's take a look at how does an agave landscape look like, and it looks like this. There are all rows and rows of agave plants, which if you, we could take like an x-ray, I don't know, I don't think x-rays work like that, but we would see that they all have the same genetic code uh, because they are clones of each other. You can take just a piece of the agave and a new individual will grow. And so you don't have to worry about it flowering for sexual reproduction because it can do it through clones. And this is great, obviously, for tequila and mezcal producers, 
But it's not so great for these agaves because as they are the same, they're just copies and copies and copies, um, then they're, they're very vulnerable, right, to uh, diseases and plagues and stress from drugs, for example, and they don't have the defenses that a more genetically diverse field would have. So what uh, we've learned when we were filming and we were looking at how people see bats in the ecosystem and how bats are valued in their roles as pollinators, uh, in recent years, the, this researcher in Mexico called Rodrigo Medellín, he's been promoting this idea of creating bat-friendly mezcal and agave in which producers leave at least 5% of their agaves to flower so bats can come and feed from them. And, uh, and they can leave 95 of them to produce tequila. So in turn, they receive this certification of bat-friendly tequila. And... <laughs> And then there's a win-win there, right? So maybe the bottles will have a little bit of a higher price, but then you're incorporating the complexity of this ecosystem into the consumption of this good. Yeah, and um, well, I, how, how am I doing that into the blue dice? How am I implementing uh, the ocean natural capital into the consumption of market goods and services? Well, I'm using this very large data set of exported goods. Um, well, this data set that was created by the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, which recorded the value of all the ocean-based exported goods and services for each year, for each country during the past 10 years. And the question that I'm asking to this data set using econometric analysis is, can we find a climate change footprint on ocean-based market goods and services? Uh, these uh, market goods and services, for example, uh, uh, what this database uh, has is exported goods from the ocean uh, as processed foods, flowers and oils, living species, and ocean-based technology. And what is on the other side? What are the uh, exported services from the ocean or how people come uh, to places near the ocean? Uh, what are the services they get? Or recreation, research, uh, have food in a restaurant, and uh, accommodations near the coast. So they have this data for every country in the, uh, for the last 10 years. And what I'm doing is to relating or to integrating some uh, biophysical changes due to climate change in the past 10 years, how the ocean is uh, warming, and some, um, and some uh, yes, in, in the form of sea surface temperature and uh, the log of chlor and the chlorophyll A here to see if there's a footprint in the value of these ocean-based uh, exported goods and services that we can attach to climate change. Uh, and some preliminary results here is that, yes, there's a value. Higher surface temperatures have a negative effect on ocean-based GDP, and that also these effects are not equally distributed across the world. As an example, the countries in Middle East and Africa lose 10 times higher than the countries uh, in OECD regions. Um, so these are some of the preliminary results of this venue of research. And I would like you to, I would like to ask you, time for another poll, uh, what are some market goods, what are some market values that you get from the ocean? So yeah, just uh, be clear, some things that, uh, just to be clear, some things that you can get in the, in the market that you can buy, exchange money, and get some benefits, which is also uh, things that we need to, to acknowledge and put here. Things that you get from the ocean, uh, cars, okay, yeah, they are, some parts probably transported there, fish, food, fish tacos, yeah, tourism. Um, what else, uh, what uh, else yeah, do, do you see? Lobsters, <laughs> lobsters yeah. yeah. Scuba, scuba diving, bananas. Yeah, a lot of the things that we get to eat here are thanks to the ocean, right? They wouldn't get here any other way. Uh, pearls, wow, yeah, I didn't, I hadn't think of that. Yeah, jewelry, uh, sushi, mm, yeah. <laughs> Pharmaceutical, that's a really good answer too. So like, yeah, and a lot of, you can see that a lot of, of it also was reflected on our first poll, but yeah, a lot of things are coming up now. Chocolate milk, mm. <laughs> uh, cruises, oysters, seaweed. Yeah, like we could uh, keep going all night and we would keep coming up with answers to this poll. So thank you very much. And also uh, we want to let you know that uh, we're going to be sharing these answers in social media. Like, they're all anonymous, so don't worry. <laughs> uh, but yeah, thank you very much, because this is a very, like, incredible landscape of what things that you, you value from the ocean that are in the market. 
But I want to move on to the second category that Bernie talked about, which are non-market ecosystem goods and services. Uh, and that uh, I want to tell a story of another region in Mexico that we were able to film in Via Guardianes. And we are looking so high here because uh, we were looking at these beautiful creatures called the red macos. And even though they here they look like, I don't know if happy, if you can say happy, but uh, that's a very rare view nowadays in that region because it used to be filled with red macaws, but uh, during the 70s and afterwards, there was a lot of deforestation of the rainforest, a lot of illegal trafficking, and so the populations of red macaws have decimated from the Tuxtlas region in Veracruz. But um, their presence before... Uh, they used to fly every afternoon in pairs. They would paint the sky in colors. And that presence was so inspiring, was so beautiful for the people that lived there, that it became also an, a part, an integral part of their culture. And in Veracruz, there, there is a musical and dance genre, genre that's very famous called the Son Jarocho. So there's even a whole dance and song that's called the red maco. So as you can see, even the dancers kind of have these dresses that imitate the color, and when they dance, they imitate the movements of the red maco, and the lyrics talk about the red maco. So they say, vuela, vuela, guacamaya, fly, fly, red maco. Don't worry, I'm not gonna sing. Uh, <laughs> but uh, even the loss of these uh, creatures, the, the loss of this inspiration is something that's reflected in that culture, and as the population has been diminishing in the region, it's also been reflected in what they sing now. So the lyrics have changed, and now they also sing uh, something along the lines of the red macaw left, but I dream of seeing it again. And that's something that really uh, inspired us and shocked us, and as you can see, Bernie was here also contributing to sharing that feeling. Doing my best, uh, trying to play that instrument <laughs> yeah no it, it was really cool to to be there and to learn how to play that anyways um how am i trying to uh incorporate this type of non-market ecosystem uh services into into the blue dice model uh what am i doing here so here um i'm looking at mangroves these very cool ecosy coastal ecosystems uh near uh within the tropics that have a lot of uh, species that have a lot of like carbon storage, a lot of things going on in these in these very interesting ecosystems that have been widely studied, and it is because of that that I can um, have a first try to incorporate them into climate policy. And what I'm looking at here is all the uh, ecosystem services that mangrove gives uh, to to society, like temperature regulation, erosion pro protection. But I'm looking at water capture filter and purification and how society benefits from mangroves in that, in that area. So the problem with mangroves here is that um, the cover of mangroves throughout the world have declined by a lot, around like more than 5,000 square kilometers in the past 25 years. And what I'm doing here, along with colleagues at the Aburto Lab, uh, which are experts on mangroves, is looking at how different directly anthropogenic impacts or like the, how the anthropogenic footprint in the coast uh, as measured by the nighttime lights near the mangroves is affecting or driving this uh, mangrove cover uh, loss as well as the sea surface temperature. What is the effect of these two things and whether we can disentangle these two uh, effects so in the future we can create better policy uh, to, uh, to preserve our mangroves worldwide. Um, so if we were, if we are able to do that, we would be able to, uh, project future mangrove cover, and then we would be able to project what are these impacts into the people, and to implement all these, uh, potentially, uh, all these values that we can gain into the social cost of carbon. All these values, uh, we, we could gain all these values if we reduce our CO2 emissions, and those values should be accounted for. Uh, so some of the preliminary results that, I, that I'm uh, obtaining here is basically that, yeah, we can observe that 
warmer and uh, more disturbed places throughout the world are going to be the, the more impacted uh, in terms of uh, mangrove uh, cover decline because of these two factors, sea surface temperature and nighttime lights. And also within these places, uh, we can see that the effect of one degree of warming in the sea surface temperature is twice as damaging uh, than expanding 1% your coastal human footprint. So these are uh, some of the things that um, I will be implementing into the blue dice model because this is some of the things that are um, out there widely studied, but there are also there are also like a lot a lot of more uh, non-market ecosystem services that we get from the ocean. And now is your time of build your own blue dice. We can call this so. Uh, please answer like uh, what what are some non-market values that you see in the ocean? What things you get from the ocean now, but now really focused on things that when you interact with the ocean, um, you get a benefit, but you don't exchange any money from it. So that's kind of like the, the question here. Uh, cool, so we're starting to get, yeah, definitely some uh, oxygen, peace, coolness, beauty. Yeah, a lot of uh, also more like abstract or not concrete emotions, right? Like joy, calmness, like there's a whole area of like our health and our lives, like well-being, as you said, that it's covered by these, that's not captured by the market. So serenity, wildlife, uh, sunsets, like just looking at a sunset, like can bring so much well-being, right? Or hearing the waves, rejuvenation, swimming, witnessing. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, and well, we're going to move on to our third category, which, is, which are non-use values. And the way I want to exemplify this is with the story of this landscape. Uh, this is the coal region in Coahuila, Mexico, which is a northern state, a desert state. And as you can see, the landscape has been destroyed by the coal industry. And not only the landscape, also the lives and the health and the communities there have been also really impacted by this activity. And what a lot of people say is that it's okay that this is happening here because uh, there's just only this, right? Like, there's, for some people, they see this and they see nothing. But when we were talking with uh, the young people that live there, uh, and we start to hear their stories about how the desert has a lot of, like, uh, not only creatures and living things and minerals and elements, but just in itself has a presence that's, that's valuable. So for them, they are trying to break away from the coal industry. They might, be, they might have tried the lives of a coal miner, but they, they have moved away from that. And with their work, what they are trying to show is that it's not only that uh, the impacts of the coal industry in the region, but also what's worth saving from this landscape that they see as valuable in itself just by existing. And we work with them to create this video series called Encarbonados. You can look uh, in YouTube for those videos. And then they share testimonies of miners, of widows, of all the people that are involved in this very complex and toxic uh, arrangement of the coal industry. But something that they really, really want to highlight is the other side. It's not only about the bad things, but also about the things that are worth saving. And they show that by telling us that for them, the land is sacred in itself. Yeah, and there's like a really clear analogy with the ocean here as well, or very, something very similar, which is the value of the deep sea. It's easy to value the things that are like closer to us, the things that we can see. But as we go farther into like uh, into the deep ocean or farther like uh, into high seas, then it starts to become more difficult to get a number, to get an estimate of that value, which we know is not zero, but what value to put in these models of climate policy. So to answer that question, um, uh, environmental economists have come up with these methods that are uh, called contingent valuation studies in which they ask uh, to people, different surveys, uh, what would they be willing to donate to save a certain uh, 
ecosystems here and there, uh, like near, near the places where they live. Uh, but the problem is that there are none of these studies uh, far from the places that they live. For example, in the Clarion-Clipperton zone, which is a zone that has a lot of uh, interest, the mining industry, to, to go there and, and do deep sea mining. Um, so what I'm doing here, uh, uh, collaborating with uh, Lisa Levin here and um, other environmental economists that have done uh, a lot of, of work on, on what we call uh, meta-analysis, which is simply bringing together all the uh, few studies that there are in terms of um, contingent valuation of or these surveys that are done in the deep sea and bringing together some also some uh, biophysical changes of the of the deep sea species to come up with an estimate of what would be the value of all those uh, of all those zones that are far from almost uh, everyone uh, so we're trying to get that value and I'm trying to put that into the blue dice model uh, so yeah the final poll for for today which is like Probably could be one of the most difficult, but it's like one on what non-use values do you see in the ocean? What things, uh, and here you should put things that you never interact with, you are never planning to interact with in your life, but still you plan, uh, but still you value them. Yeah, so we have mystery, yeah, like even having this really big uh, body of water outside, it's valuable in itself, right, that we don't know. A lot, but it's okay if we don't know. It still has value. Uh, yeah, there, and also we forgot to say this, but uh, at the time of the Q&A, we would really love if some of you would like to explain some of your answers. And I'm saying this because I see this word, which is thalassophobia, and I would really like to know what's that. <laughs> yeah, good one. <laughs> Great, thank you so much. Please keep, uh, yeah, keep typing that. We will be saving and sharing these these things for uh, for followers in social media. But that is basically how we've been. Uh, telling the stories and incorporating those stories of the things that we value uh, through science communication and climate change economics. And what we have discovered, Rice and I, is that by doing this as a power couple, sort of, uh, we've been like um, learning a lot from each other, from these different disciplines, and that our work wouldn't be the same in both science communication and climate change economics if we wouldn't be doing these two uh, things uh, so, so closely related. So a little bit of um, what's next on the side of uh, climate change economics. Well, on my side, uh, be prepared because a lot of journal articles will be coming up uh, regarding the blue dice model. So I showed you some preliminary results, but the idea in the rest of my one year and a half here as a postdoctoral fellow is to uh, come up with um, a peer-reviewed blue dice model. Uh, and I hope that this, uh, well, everything that I do in academia, I hope that is used by uh, by actual climate policy, and that's why I was like so thrilled and so excited to receive like this email a couple of weeks ago uh, from the White House saying that two of my papers have been used in the most recent annual economic report of climate change. I was like, Whoa. thank you, that's a uh, thank you so much, and I was like, oh my god, this is impacting in one way or another. Hopefully, like uh, some. Uh, yeah, high spheres of like uh, climate uh, economics here. And I hope the blue dice model can also get to, to impact these sort of things that, that actually have an effect, no? Yeah, and on the science communication side, what's coming up is that if you rem remember these projects that I told you about uh, from TierraCam, so uh, a very diverse set of, of ideas came up and we'll be showcasing them uh, next May 6th. So if you happen to be in Mexico City at the time, you are very welcome to attend this year's Earth Day Festival, Tierra Fest, uh, and where we'll be also sharing these beautiful projects that these uh, land defenders and environmental justice advocates are doing. For example, this will be a short animated film about uh, protecting water in Puebla, a documentary film about uh, preserving birds' habitats in Veracruz with communities, and also uh, these short stories about the coal region that I told you about, but also the magical creatures that inhabit that region. And we also like to bring together the things that other people are doing, and we'll be doing that by with this uh, environmental and earth fest film festival, Tierra Film, in which people can submit their short films 
where they showcase the value of Earth for them. And so, well, we want to conclude with this idea. Yeah, uh, by saying that we have learned that naming what we value is the first step in saving it. But it's not the last. So as you leave for tonight, we want you to reflect. We're going to leave you a little bit of homework. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, we just want you to reflect on what steps are you, you might be taking right now or will want to take in the future to take care of what you value as we've seen throughout this talk. Thank you. Hi there. Yeah, this is going to be a little weird because I, you guys asked a question and I'm in a position to answer it because I'm the one who... So thalassophobia means fear of sea monsters. You know, things can grow to enormous size down in the depths. And what if those things were carnivorous and wanted to eat people? You never know. So it's just kind of a thing that's... In the back of my mind, I don't want to interact with it, but it's there. Oh. Wow, well, thank you so much. That's also the idea for us to like have this chat and also for us to learn, right? So thank you so much. I'm, I learned something new, definitely. <laughs> we have time for one or two more questions uh, here and then over there. Um, so I uh, assume this varies from industry to industry, but how much around average is the negative effects of... Um, on ocean-based GDP? Um, trying, to, trying to remember those, those, those results, but um, yeah, well, it varies by country. Uh, what I've seen is that um, small islands are the ones that are more affected. Most of their like, GDP comes from, from the ocean. So basically, um, yeah, one degree of warming affects, uh, well, what we, what, what we saw is that it's around like 10 times higher than countries in OECD. I don't have like the specific uh, numbers in the top of my mind right now, but yeah, keep, keep tuned for, for that article, I would say. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for asking. Once you quantify the costs of the externalities of climate change, what's the best way to bring those externalities in so people see the costs and make adjustments. Uh, carbon tax or uh, trading permits. Yeah, that, that would be that. That's still an, an open question, like kind of like the, uh, like the handbook answer or the book answer is like a carbon tax or a permit that will uh, internalize the externality of, of those damages. But still, the way to, that you instrument it, uh, how, you, how to use this uh, estimation, has also a lot of uh, has also effects on uh, how uh, the cost of paying that will distribute that uh, along your society. So even if I don't have like a specific like uh, instrument in mind, I would say the one that diminishes uh, the climate injustices. So for example, if we just put like a carbon tax and we all pay that. Uh, we would be all paying from out of our pocket, while probably uh, is the big oil industries that the ones that should be paying uh, for these damages. No, so I would say this. Uh, that's kind of like uh, how I would approach uh, that that answer that question. Thanks. Well, let's thank Bernie and Rice again, and thank you all for coming. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.